Uh, yeah, so good morning. Today we're going to talk about Daniel 2. Um, I guess that last week we had a good, or the last time you were together, Barbara gave us a brilliant run-through of Daniel, uh, some brief explanation of the whole kind of picture. What I didn't pick up on, though, because the recording didn't work, was that, did Barbara go through Daniel 1 with us? Or did we just have a holistic view of Daniel? The overview of the whole of Daniel. Cool. Okay. Um, I'm going to start in an unusual place. If, we, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, go to... No, actually, don't do that. It's a bit of a joke. You'll find in Joel 2 and in Acts 2, it talks about your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So I find it really ironic that in the book of Daniel, I'm going to be talking to you about both sets of dreams. I don't think that's right. I'm the young guy in the team. Surely I shouldn't be doing the dreams. Um, but I am. So in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be going through the other vision. The other vision was of the tree, if we know our book of Daniel. In Daniel 1, as a reminder, we were looking at these four young men who were just going about their daily business in their kingdom, one of whom was going to be the future ruler, a teenager, a strapping young man, an intelligent man. This foreign ruler comes into his nation and God gives them the victory. Why? These four young men, amongst others, are then taken to this foreign nation and they start to be trained. We see within that, we often talk, sorry, this is not quite working today. We, we see God's favour almost immediately when they stand up and they say, look, we don't mind learning the stuff that you're going to teach us, but we're not going to do some of the things you make us do. And actually, they change their names. I'm not going to go into this because it was just a, meant as a, more of an introduction to what I was going to speak of. But the four names of the young men were changed. And they were quite, changed quite seriously because the four names that they had all related to their God, the God of Israel, our God, Yahweh, El. And the four names that they were given actually related to Babylonian gods. Now, obviously, they couldn't control what other people called them, but they could control things like their food intake. We know the story, right? So the, the emperor wanted them to have, the king wanted them to have his choice food and drink. And they went to the garden and they said, can you do me a favour? I love that. It shows you a little bit about Daniel's nature. He didn't do what some of us might do and stand there and go, I'm a Christian, I'm not going to do this. No, he actually took a more humble approach, a more gentle approach and said, if it would please you, if you would allow me, if you would just give me the privilege of proving to you that actually this is not the only way, if you just let me have vegetables for a week and water, then come, and, then come and assess us. Come and have a look, but please afford me the favour. And he did. How amazing is that? I wonder if some of us, in our approach to things we do, if we just went for that favour, as opposed to taking that very strong standpoint of, I don't do this because I don't do this. I wonder how the world view of the church would actually change. I thought that was incredible. But we see that God gave Nebuchadnezzar favour. He gave him victory. Not because Nebuchadnezzar was a good king. Not because Nebuchadnezzar was a Christian or a Jew or even a believer of God. But because he was powerful. God gave him favour. God gave Daniel favour via God, as we just heard. He didn't let him 
didn't force him to take on the food. He was able to take favour from the guard. We know that during their training, a little bit later on in Daniel 1, that God gave favour directly to Daniel and his friends because they gave him the ability to interpret dreams. A much greater understander. Nebuchadnezzar describes it as he couldn't find anyone equal to them amongst all the other trainees. Now, if that's not the favour of God, then I don't know what is. Now, actually, that that brief introduction into Daniel 1, and I'm glad I kind of prepared some stuff with that, because I'm not talking to you about Daniel 1 today, I'm talking to you about Daniel 2. But if we look at just a few subtle changes in Daniel 1, in the way they approach things and in God's favour, it has a massive impact in the future of these guys' young lives. In fact, it actually makes for Daniel a difference to the next 80 years of his life. If we think about some 16-year-olds to 18-year-olds that we know, isn't it right that some of the decisions that they make as such young men, and women, sorry, such young people, because Daniel and his friends were male, um, but these young people that make these decisions at, at these very tender young ages tend to impact what their lives look like in their 80s. And that was exactly what happened to Daniel. We looked through Daniel 1, and some of those choices and decisions that he made, which resulted in the favour that he got from God, then impacted the rest of his life and where he was going to be. He succeeded three kings. He worked under three kings. That's an amazing testimony. And received favour in each of those. And it started in Daniel 1, by him taking a humble approach to say, hey, I know it's not what you want, but could you just treat me a little bit differently? Can you just allow me this... This one little thing for myself. I'll prove to you that it's even better. I love that. In Daniel 2, it's a bit of a different story. It starts off with Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. I have a dream. It's a famous quote, isn't it? I love that. But he had a dream. And I think one of the most interesting things about this is he doesn't know what it was. Many, many Bible scholars have kind of two schools of thought, but the most popular one is that actually probably like us. Nebuchadnezzar woke up and he knew he'd had a terrifying dream but he couldn't quite put his finger on what it was. He couldn't remember the details. I mean there are other Bible scholars that say well he did and he was actually just testing them. He really wanted to know if these magicians and sorcerers and wise men were what they said they were. Did they have all the answers? For years they took his favour, they took his money, they took his pay, they took his food this choice lifestyle, on the promise that when you have a problem, we're there to help you. We have the wisdom. We have the knowledge. We have the spiritual power to assist you. So whether Nebuchadnezzar was actually testing these magicians and sorcerers, I I don't have the answer to that. I wasn't there. But what we do know is the result, that they didn't have the answer. Nobody except the gods could I give you what you're asking for? That's the quote. It's the most impossible thing. No king before you, no matter how great, has ever asked such a thing as this. Nobody, I love this, nobody but the gods themselves could give you an answer to this question. And we don't know them. Can you imagine the look on Nebuchadnezzar's face after all these years of training and support and pay and finances? To suddenly be in a position where he's in, he's in that situation. He finally needs their help. And they confess, we can't help him. We don't know. The king made a firm decision. 
He said, if you can't tell me, okay, I can't think of a firmer decision. Success, life carries on. In fact, I'll give you even greater reward. Failure, I'm going to kill you and all of your cohorts. All of you. But King, it's impossible what you ask. I can't give you, we can't give you, nobody can give you what you're asking for. You're just trying to buy time. You're just trying to make sure that whatever this dream was, and this is a really interesting one, if you're trying to buy time, you're trying to let this thing that I'm afraid of happen. Because if this bad thing happens to me, then I can't come back and kill you. You're trying to buy time. I never used to read it like that. I just thought through our own lens of 2018 that people, when they don't know the answers to questions, will try and buy time. They want to go and ask somebody why to go and Google it. I love Google. Um, they try and buy time. It never occurred to me that they were trying to buy so much time as to let his dream come true. Now, again, that's just a school of thought. I don't necessarily know if that's true or not, but it's a very interesting perspective, isn't it? Desperation led these guys to confess. I love that. Don't we all do that? This week, somebody asked me, and just because it's being recorded, I'm not going to tell you who or what it was about, um, but I've shared it with a few people in the church, is that somebody came to me who is a self-proclaimed atheist, a nothing. They know I work for a, a church, they know I'm a Christian, they know I've done youth work, and, and they're quite supportive of it, but they're a self-proclaimed atheist. And they are going through one of the most terrifying experiences of their own life. They're probably not terrifying to most of us, but to them, it's an extreme situation. It's resulted in a confession. It's in, resulted in a desperation. Will you pray for me? Yes! I will pray for you, brother, because I have a God that can solve your problem. But here's a very intelligent guy, somebody I have a huge amount of respect for and love for, coming to a point of desperation. He says, we, we don't have the answer anymore. We can't go any further. We need somebody to help. And these guys didn't quite go that far. These enchanters and magicians and sorcerers, they didn't get to that point, but they got to the point of confession. They said... We don't know. And actually, maybe if they did know Yahweh, maybe if they did know El, maybe if they knew our God, perhaps they would have gone to their rooms with their friends, got on their knees, and prayed for the answer. But they didn't. They were at a complete loss. Nebuchadnezzar was at a complete loss and was just about to kill everyone, including Daniel and his friends. The bit that it doesn't go into is why they weren't there in the first place, because they were wise men, they would have known some stuff. Maybe they hadn't had their graduation, they hadn't had their setting in, Brian, they hadn't had their 3rd of June. Somebody came on, laid hands and said, you're now a wise man, you've completed your training. We don't actually know why they weren't there. But what we do know is when Daniel caught wind of it, and here's a little idiosyncrasy, when Daniel caught wind of it, he went to the king. And that's an ounce of favour again. Not everybody. I couldn't just walk in and see Prince Charles or the Queen. Could I? So it's an ounce of favour there. He's already made a name for himself. Because remember, there's none quite like him. He couldn't find anyone to that measure as these three young men, four young men. Remember the king said to the other enchanters and magicians, 
No, you're just trying to buy time. Daniel went and asked for time and was awarded it. Because we then know that Daniel went back to his room to see his friends. So there's another ounce of favour. We're beginning to see God's favour in this situation. A situation that even just a few chapters ago, we couldn't see that. God had given victory to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Where's God's favour in that for Israel? Where's God's favour in that for this 16-year-old lad and his friends that got kidnapped and abducted and taken to another country and had their names forcefully changed? Where's God's favour? Well, we actually see God's favour in Nebuchadnezzar, but we don't see it for Daniel and his friends. But suddenly we start to see through this humble decision of, just allow me to eat vegetables and water. That humble approach. We begin to see the favour through the guard. We've seen favour from God in their gifting to those young men in what they're doing awesome suddenly something really important comes up and we see God's favor on Daniel and his friends again because he says king give me some time to go and pray to my God I love this he points he said I will get you that answer but I don't have the answer he goes and this is probably where it switches from what I would call the insufficiency of man Because up until this point, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with humanity. And we're insufficient. We don't have the answers. The magicians, the sorcerers, they couldn't figure out what was going on. They couldn't interpret the dream. We couldn't have victory. We were not in control of our destiny or our situation. There was lying, there was deceit, there was corruption. All of these things were going on. These are the weaknesses of humanity. So many of them, not all of them, there's far more weaknesses than we present but so many of them condensed in such a short part of the story. And we now start to see actually what happens when we intercede into humanity with prayer. Because Daniel goes back to his room and he says, guys, we've got a problem. Dave, Brian, Terry, we've got a problem. We're just about to get killed. It's not even our fault. We haven't even done anything. But we're just about to get killed because the king's had a dream. And he says, if no one can interpret it, and in fact, if no one can tell him what it is first and then interpret it, they're all going to die and we're part of them now, so we're going to die too. (sighs) Let's pray. And I love that. He didn't run back to his room. He didn't pray by himself. I think that would have been my first instinct is hit hit the ground, get on my knees, fast, pray, send it to heaven. God, I need your help. They're just about to take my life. No, he went corporate. He went corporate, he went to his friends and said, we need to pray. We need God to reveal this to us. And they said, yeah, I think I would have done too if I'd heard that situation. Yeah, we need to pray together. I'm not going to pray for you. We're going to pray together for our situation. And we know that that's what they did. They went to bed and then God revealed the dream and its interpretation to Daniel whilst he was sleeping. How often do we pray for something that seems impossible and not expect the answer. Maybe that's just a little personal confession of mine. I don't mind being real with you. I'm no perfect guy. I'm not Jesus. Sometimes I pray and I doubt the prayer. You know, I've got to pray because I'm a Christian and that's what I do, right? And sometimes I think, but this situation is so insurmountable that actually I don't think God is going to fix this for me. Sometimes when I pray for people to be healed, I, I think to myself, I know God can, but I also know times when he hasn't. So I wonder if he will this time. 
not the right way to go. Daniel had so much faith with his friends that God was going to answer this. How do I know that? Because he went to bed. Think about it. Your life is on the line. Your life is on the line. And you, you pray and you say, God, I need this information. I need you to, I promised these two I would preach at them today, so I'm going to. <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit of a joke. But your life is on the line. You've prayed, you said, God save me. You must have had so much faith to then go to bed and say, okay, he's going to speak to me. He's going to answer that question for me. Otherwise, I don't think I would have gone to bed. I think I'd still be there on my knees going, God, help me. I know I've asked you three times already this evening, but I'm not convinced you're going to do it, so I'm going to ask you for a fourth. And I think there is a value in persistence of prayer, but there has to be that step of faith. I was talking to Brian and Keith this week about faith, about the way forward for the church. And to say, we need the faith to move forward in the church. It's great to say, God, give us the direction. And I know that the trustees talk about this often. You say, what's the vision of the church? So that we can make the decisions to take us forward. And I think it's great, but you've got a left foot and a right foot. And I think the left foot is direction. I think the right foot is faith. And you have to take one step at a time for us to get to where we're going. It's profound. It's good. So what steps of faith are we taking? Daniel went to bed. It's the sort of step of faith I'd like to take, actually. I like sleeping, especially napping. But the point is that God came and answered his prayer. He gave him the vision. What did he do? Yes, my life's been saved. King, king, I've got the answer. No, he didn't. He got on his knees and he prayed some more and he said, God, thank you. You are the God of all gods. You are amazing. You are awesome. Your reign will last forever amazing thank you god i praise you i thank you for what you've done for me awesome he gave thanks how often do we do that if we want to understand the power of prayer we have to understand the power of all prayers not just the prayer of supplication and of request but of praise and of thanksgiving too i love it when i go to prayer meetings and people start with lord we want to thank you for the prayers you answered this week yes what a great prayer i love that one we want to thank you for prayers already answered. Thank you, Jesus. We've got some more requests for you, but thank you for the ones you've answered. And actually for the ones you haven't, we trust you still. I love that. That's how Daniel did. He stood up and he said, well, he actually knelt down and he said, thank you, Jesus, you've answered. Thank you, God, you've answered. And then he went to Ariok, the guard, and he said, God has revealed the answer to me. Now, I was listening to a, a sermon from David Paulson this week on Daniel 2 as part of my research. And he's picked up a point I'd never picked up before. is that Ariok then goes to the king as a proper little bureaucrat and says, I found the answer. I found the one you need. He didn't at all. Daniel went to him. But how often do we do that in our day-to-day -day lives? How often do we see that when an answer is found? Somebody wants to try and take the glory for themselves. Wow, what a wonderful business I grew. What a wonderful policy I introduced. What a wonderful youth ministry I built. Oh, sorry, no, sorry. Um, we want to take the praise for ourselves, but Daniel wouldn't do that. Daniel gave the praise to God. Ariok wanted the praise for himself. But either way, he ended up in front of the king again, and the king said, Go on and tell me the dream. And he does, and I hope we're all familiar with the dream. Um, Daniel says to him, 
No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. So still in front of the king, he doesn't say, I've got the answer. He says, I don't. And no wise man or magician or sorcerer could ever have the answer for you. But there is a God in heaven who does and can and will. He told him the dream. He said, your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Whilst you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. We've got some pretty mature Christians in the room today. I'm guessing you've heard people preach on Daniel 2 before. I'm guessing, I'm hoping. You've read Daniel 2 before. You've heard of this statue. I don't want to spend a huge amount of time talking about prophecy. I don't want to spend a huge amount of time talking about what's going to happen in the future. You are going to have the good fortune about hearing Keith in a few weeks' time talk about the prophecy elements of the Daniel book. I really want to stay focused on, the, for what I believe is the core of what this story is telling us as a church today, which is about the insufficient of humanity and the power of prayer in the insufficiency of humanity. There's a final point, but I'm not going to give that away just yet. But to talk about this, if you're not familiar with this vision, it's quite a common thing in that history, in that timeline, for dreams to be about bodies. Okay? Uh, a few thousand years ago, people were very familiar with the bodies. They knew about heads, they knew about kings, they knew about chests and arms and legs and feet. Why? Because everyone has a body, right? So a lot of the stories, a lot of the imagery used at that time would have been about bodies. Now to us that might seem a little strange, you know, having a body with a head of gold. Maybe if we had that vision today, our interpretation would be maybe it was a, 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 a helmet or a mask of gold, perhaps. Because we know that a head of gold would be, well, heavy for a start, and there's no room on the inside for anything to go. So we would start questioning some of the details of this. But back then this would have been quite normal for somebody to say, I've had a dream, and it was of a body. So this is quite normal. The head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he was wealthy. The head, the top. We know, like, for example, Jesus is the head of the church. We know that the head is a pretty important... I'm not a teacher or a biologist. Head is a part of... Is it a limb? I don't know what it is. I know if I lost my head, I wouldn't survive very long. Okay? In both senses of the, of the phrase. If my head were to be removed from my body, I wouldn't last very long. A little bit different to say an arm. If an arm had been removed from my body, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be happy, but I'm going to be okay. If a foot or a toe got removed from my body, I'd, I'd, probably, I'd probably prefer that to my arm, because at least I could put a prosthetic on and most people wouldn't even know about it. But losing an arm, that's going to be a bit difficult. But the head is pretty essential, especially if you like hats. It's pretty essential. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. 
an incredibly important part of the body and an incredibly valuable metal. Very shiny, very expensive. Why? Because his kingdom, forget whether he was a good man or not, forget whether he was part of God's kingdom or not, it was a good kingdom. It was a powerful kingdom. It was a big kingdom. It was a wealthy kingdom. It was very clear on the fact that he was king. There was a very clear hierarchy. And actually, as you go through history, kingdoms tend to change. So, for example, we bring it fast forward to today, we're in the United Kingdom. Our queen is not even the head of our state. Parliament is. She doesn't make any decisions. We can call her whatever you want. But she doesn't actually have any power. It's a process. And if you look back to, say, the Roman Empire, well, Caesar could be voted in or out by popular demand, and by voted, it normally happened with a dagger or poison in his sleep, but, you know, by popular demand, you, could, you can add and remove a Caesar in no time at all. The Grecian Empire was, was actually a democracy. It was the first kind of democracy of its type, but again, the king or the leader could come and go. In Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was the king, straight up. He was in charge. The only way to get rid of him was literally to overthrow him, but you couldn't. He was too powerful. And I think that's part of the symbology of it being gold, the most valuable of the metals, that he was the top. We know that the chest and arms were of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, the belly and thighs of bronze, the Grecian Empire, the legs of iron, yet another kingdom, Rome. Again, I don't really want to focus, I'm not going to give you... All the, all the breakdowns of this stuff. If you look in your study Bible, it gives you a pretty clear breakdown of this. I think the only part of con- bone of contention with this in this vision is that essentially are the legs of, let's get this right, of iron and the feet of iron and clay. Are they the same thing? Because some will say that the legs and the feet are actually the Roman Empire and the feet of iron and clay is the Roman Empire East and West. And of course we know that the Western Roman Empire, now you could even call that, what would you call that now? Europe, perhaps? The Western Empire would probably be the Arab or the Muslim Empire, where you have those Islamic State countries that are working together. That's not in comment to any terrorism or anything you've heard in the news, that's just geography. I think some people would would stumble on that. And that's why I don't particularly want to focus on that today. I was given some advice from our friend up in Lancaster when he found out I was speaking on Daniel 2. He said, Ricky, don't waste too much time talking about toes. And I did think of that this morning when I put my flip-flops on. Because how many people could get on this imagery? And in fact, it was my first thought when I was preparing for today. It's like, right, I've got a statue. Let's go. Let's spend an hour talking about a statue. I'm I'm not into that. When I read Daniel 2 and I prayed, Lord, tell me what to speak to the church about, he actually said, not the statue. Read the rest of the story. I began to see God's favour. I began to see the weakness of humanity. I began to see the power of prayer. And then I looked at the end of the story and I said, where did this rock come from? There's a statue, there's a rock, but not cut by human hands. And this rock comes in and it destroys the statue. It hits the feet, actually. It hits the feet of iron and clay, which are brittle, of course. It's not a good metal. Though. And the whole statue is disintegrated. All these four kingdoms, which were not in existence at the same time, they were one after another after another. This is spanning a huge amount of history. But all of those kingdoms would be destroyed and this new rock would turn into a mountain that covered the whole earth. A fifth kingdom. That's our understanding of the vision. It's a fifth kingdom. 
Let's not have a quiz. We know it's the kingdom of God. Why? Because we know the imagery. We've heard the imagery of a rock before or a stone. It's used all throughout the Old Testament and new. We sang about it a minute ago. Christ alone, cornerstone, the stone that was rejected. Jesus is this stone. Jesus is this rock, not cut by human hands, that comes and will destroy these other empires, these other kingdoms, and establish himself across the whole earth in a new kingdom. Beautiful. I love that. The stone that was rejected is the stone that will grow into the mountain, that will cover the whole earth in his glory. What's the news this week, last week, next week? It's full of negativity. I was, uh, I was traveling back from Mongolia and I was in Turkey. I got stuck there for like six and a half hours, so it wasn't the greatest of experience, but I, I began to see certain things. And I'd forgotten that Turkey is actually an Islamic State country. Not, Islam, not the so-called Islamic State, please don't get the terminology confused when you listen to some of the stuff on the news about terrorism, you hear about the so-called Islamic State. That's not what I'm talking about. There are seven nations that are called Islamic State nations. It means that they give over to Sharia law and they're Islamic and they're Muslim and, and that's how they describe themselves. Probably very much like we would have described ourselves as a Christian nation a few years ago. And I stood there and I thought, I wonder if you're one of these iron and clay toes, these ten nations that will be there at the end, the final challenge, as some have described it in the commentaries within Daniel. That final kingdom that will be in place where the rock will come and destroy not only that empire, but the empires that went before it. I wonder if that is one of those final things. And if it is, it suddenly changes the way I view the current state of the world. Because when I see the current state of the world, I, I look around me and not all my friends are saved. Not all my family are saved. I look around me and there's terror. And I look around me and there's death. And I look around me and there's pain and there's suffering and there's illness and there's poverty and there's unfairness. And man, I'm not going to get into... I was at safeguarding training yesterday with the, the street and school pastors. That genuinely hurts me. I do the training because I want to do the best for young people. But if you allow any of those stories, any of those, anyone who's ever worked in a school or worked with youth or children, you know what I'm talking about. You go through that training, they tell you some horror stories about things that have happened. And when you go home and you're sat by yourself, you think, wow, that's horrible. We live in a world where that happens. How did that child get hit by his father or his mother? The person who was given to look after them the best. I was very fortunate as a young man not to ever suffer anything like that. But we live in such a broken world. It is so easy to think we lost. We lost. How many people this Sunday are in church? In the nation? How many people are in England now? 70 million? Something like that? I don't know. That might be a massive underestimate. I don't know. Very, not very good with numbers. But let's call it 70 million. How many of those do we think are active Christians who are saved that are attending church and are part of a body of believers? Not very many. More than ever before, actually, but not as a percentage. There are more Christians alive today across the world than ever before. Did you know that? More Christians on this planet than ever before. And we think we lost. Duh. 
We just happen to be in a nation where it doesn't represent very well. You might say that a few years ago, our nation proclaimed to be Christians, but we weren't. We weren't actually saved. Many people would describe it because they thought it was what you put on the tick box when you applied for a passport, right? Yeah, or a driving license. What's your religion? I'm Christian because, you know, I'm English. Or I'm Welsh, or I'm Scottish, or Irish, so I don't need to be uh, discriminatory there. And some might see it as a victory that at least now that perception doesn't happen anymore. That the people who profess to be Christians are actually Christians, are actually saved, are followers of Christ. What a victory. Jesus came once. He's coming again. Whether you think this rock coming in to destroy these nations was Jesus coming the first time, one school of thought, who's going to destroy and has destroyed all these other nations, and he's currently in the process of growing into the mountain and covering the whole earth. You can see the story coming. More Christians alive today than ever before. Christians are crossing different countries, different nations. That mountain is growing, isn't it, across the earth now? My problem with that is that those other nations still exist. They're not in smithereens. They've not been smashed to dust. So therefore... I think it's more probable that it's the second coming of Jesus is this Daniel's rock that's going to come in. We know he started, we know he's come. I think the completion is in the revelation that Jesus is coming back. I love that. But until he does, I think there's an important lesson to learn from Daniel too. From Daniel and his friends, and I think it's in the insufficiency of humanity and in the power of prayer. There was lots of references in here if you wanted them about where Jesus was referred to as the rock. I didn't even write them all down, but in Acts 4, Ephesians 2, Psalm 118. Jesus even talks about it again in Matthew 21 in a slightly different context. But if you you type in to any kind of Bible app, Jesus is the rock, you're going to get loads of references. So that will confirm to you, if you read it through that lens, what I've said. I think in conclusion... And I think we did really well for time today, don't we? Half past 12. Awesome. Um, When we pray, what do we expect to happen? We've sort of answered that question already. But are we quick to give praise and thanksgiving in faith or in answer? I think when I see an answer to a prayer, I'm often very grateful that God has answered that prayer. Even if sometimes it wasn't the answer I was expecting. Sometimes it's even better. For example, when I knew I was being called into the ministry, I said, God, send me to, send me somewhere. I'll go, Isaiah 6, here I am, send me. And he answered my prayer. It was much better than I expected because I ended up here. It's really cool. God gave me a better answer than I expected. Actually, when I thought, here I am, send me, I didn't know what was going to happen. It's one of those answers, one of those prayers that was a little bit more open. How quick we forget what has been answered and focus on what hasn't. My life, my testimony is full of times where I've prayed and God has answered those prayers. It's also full of times I asked and they weren't. Guess which ones I think about the most? Duh. Let's focus on what God has done for us. Let's focus on the things that God has given us victory in rather than the things that we haven't seen yet because we don't understand why. How often we concern ourselves with the state of the fourth kingdom. I put that was probably a little bit too detailed for my own notes. But the one we're in, or the one that just got destroyed, whichever your school of thought is, the broken world that we're in. 
The fact that Jesus hasn't actually come that second time, the fact that we haven't seen the fruition of this, we're not living in the, in the revival period, we're not living in the restoration, we're not living in the, in the second coming yet, we're not living in, that, in that, final, that final patch of our history. I'm not a particularly anxious person, I do struggle with it sometimes, if I'm honest, not, not medically, I mean just, I tend to worry about stuff. Stuff like business, stuff like finances, stuff like cars, health, family, friends, church, buying houses, selling houses, mobile phone bills, having to ring Tony about anything. You know, there's a number of things that I can be anxious about. And actually, I shared this with Brian the other day. There was one day this week where I woke up, and for some reason I woke up really early, and and I just began, my head was on fire with all these different things, because I'm not looking for your sympathy, but there's a lot going on right now. I'm trying to sell a house in rugby, I'm trying to buy a house down here, I'm living in Peter's house, very generous man, and that's all going very well. I'm trying to get to know all of you guys, we as a church are looking at different things. So there's an awful lot going on in my mind and I'm beginning to, what if this happens or what if that happens or why didn't this happen like the way I thought it would happen or, or why is this solicitor not done anything with my house? Four weeks, no feedback. Like how is that even possible? The amount of money they earn, you expect a better service. I hope you're listening. Um, but four weeks and nothing happened. And I begin to fret about this and this is 5 a.m. I think, 5.30 in the morning. And my head starts to go. I don't know what caught me, but Jesus caught me. And I said, actually, God, I'm going to give you this extra bit of stolen time of my life that I didn't think I'd have because I don't normally wake up at 5.30 in the morning. So I've got an hour here. I'm just not going to be anxious. I'm not going to fret about the state of the world or my life or the things that are going on. Lord, I just want to be with you for an hour. I didn't go and get on my knees, I didn't go and get my study Bible, I didn't start going and getting concordances and think, right, let's make it very spiritual. I stayed in bed, actually, is the truth. And I just prayed. I said, Lord, I thank you. Even just in these last three months, the miracles that you've shown me, the things that you've done in my life have been incredible. The things that you're doing in the church are wonderful. The things you did in Mongolia are literally miraculous. And actually, if I wasn't careful, I would have missed all those things. And just in that quiet moment, the Lord speaks to you and he brings you to peace. And they were actually prayers of just thanksgiving. I didn't ask him for anything. Come the end, I said, show me something. I said, in in gratitude, show me what to do next. Give me one thing. And I believe he has. I'm not not ready to share that with you guys yet, uh, but it's a good thing. So just show me one thing. And it was a step of faith that I needed to take. I haven't taken it yet. But it was encouraging to hear that when we don't focus on the fourth kingdom, when we don't focus on how things are broken and lost, if we can focus on what God has done for us, because I think I can speak for all of us and say, he's done at least one thing for all of us. He saved us. He died for our sins. He accepted us into his kingdom. The rest of it, we can spend our lives trying to understand and study and debate and think about and discuss. But we know one thing's for certain. He came for us. He died for us. He accepted us. That is a straight up Pete Douglas quote from Friday, Saturday. Excellent, isn't it? He accepted us for who we are. How do we pray? 
Well, on a final point, and then we will stop because it's beautifully sunny outside. Jesus taught us how to pray, and we're going to do something ridiculously traditional now. I would like us to say the Lord's Prayer. Because our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is a reminder that when we pray, the first thing we should do is lift him up. It's not about what he can do for us. It's not about the problems that we're in. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of acknowledgement. It's a prayer of praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, I've got some wish lists. I want a Ferrari. You know, maybe not so. But I've got some stuff I want in my life, but actually those things are secondary to me. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I want what you want. Yeah, okay. Give us what we need. Give us our day. Give us today our daily bread. (laughs) And forgive us. I love that. As we forgive others, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now you can use whatever word you want with that, whatever interpretation you want. It's a powerful prayer, it's a good prayer. We all know the words? Should we say it? I've never done this before. This is kind of very old-fashioned. Have you done it before? Hillary, come up the front, lead us in this. 